This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. From Times Square in Hong Kong, you're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. We are surrounded by structures that can quarantine us without even necessarily being told to by a human operator. If you combine your internet searches with the information coming from all of the kind of diagnostic or sensor-based appliances around your house. Maybe you've been searching for flu remedies online, and maybe your bathroom mirror, which might have a sensor behind the glass, uh, is picking up signs of a fever. Put those things together, and you might find that your apartment suddenly doesn't let you out someday. That's Jeff Mayno, co-author with Nicola Twilley of Until Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine. I'm Charmaine Chan. And in this episode of the Postbooks podcast, the ever-curious couple tell me about quarantine from its origins in 14th century Europe to where and how it's used today. Their project had its start in 2009 after they stayed at a hotel in Australia converted from an old quarantine station. I asked them what it was about medical isolation that so intrigued them it led to this book. Originally, as an architecture and design writer, um, you know, I had thought to myself, wow, this would be a really interesting project to look at what happened to quarantine. You know, quarantine appeared to be at that moment, this kind of obsolete practice. We didn't need to do it anymore, you know, is what is what it seemed like. You know, we have vaccinations, we've got um, all kinds of drugs that might protect us from these pandemics or from emerging diseases. And so quarantine is outdated. It's It's even medieval. Um, but what obviously was interesting is that the minute, uh, you know, you look into quarantine, you know, it's very obvious that not only is it not obsolete and that it didn't disappear. In fact, if anything, uh, it just became ubiquitous. You know, so it's now at airports. Uh, it's at uh, it's in NASA. So quarantine is actually everywhere. And that was really kind of the origin for the research project was tracking down quarantine everywhere it might pop up. And it just went everywhere. It was like finding rabbit holes throughout your back garden. Quarantine led everywhere and everything led to quarantine. Does that mean you started with the idea that it would be a rather short book, and then it turned out to be a rather large book that has taken 11 plus years? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it did start out as seeming that it would be about history. And, and in fact, that's something we encountered as we reported the book. Even some public health experts would say, well, if you're writing a book about quarantine, it must be a historical book because... We don't recommend mass quarantines anymore. We wouldn't imagine using those. There are too many problems. You know, we live in a world of medical countermeasures. And, uh, and we heard that more than once as we researched the book. And then, of course, now as we see, the world still relies on quarantine as much as, you know, Venetians during the Black Death. So it did expand far beyond its initial scope. And I, and I should add, just in in our own editorial defense, our initial uh, impulse, which was way back in 2009, it, it resulted in a smaller project. And then we actually came back to this in 2016. And so 
to our editor's delight, you know, it wasn't an 11 year book project, uh, but, uh, but only five, I should say. I think we should start with your clarifying the difference between quarantine and isolation. Absolutely. Uh, if you know a person is sick and contagious and you wish to stop them from spreading the disease, you isolate them. If you don't know whether they're sick and contagious, but you have reason to believe they might be, and so you isolate them in case they are, and you wait to see whether they are healthy or they are diseased, that's quarantine. And it's that uncertainty and suspicion that makes it so interesting and so powerful. And, you know, think of law where you're innocent until proven guilty. Well, in quarantine, you're dangerous until proven safe. Quarantine often looks like isolation in practice. The two overlap. They're even used interchangeably by a lot of medical professionals, but they do at heart have a striking difference. As Nikki was describing, that's so interesting about quarantine is that it lends itself immediately to so many different metaphors. Um, it's the idea that there might be something inside you or something inside other people, and you're simply giving it the space and time to articulate itself. So it's a period of waiting, but it's also a period of trying to see if something arrives or see if something emerges. And I think there's something very metaphorically powerful about that. Until Proven Safe also looks at the Fangchang Shelter Hospitals in China that were the enormous makeshift facilities set up in sports arenas and convention centers. They were mandatory for people who tested positive, but showed only mild or no symptoms of COVID-19. And Chinese doctors, as the authors write, broadly credit the system with allowing them to contain the pandemic. As I understand it, there was sort of two separate sets of structures. Um, there were isolation hospitals for people who were known to have COVID, and then there were these mass quarantine facilities for people from the same household, people from the same building, people who could be reasonably suspected to be COVID positive, but were not showing symptoms at that time. And that mass quarantine is something that China did very um, boldly, as it were, on a mass scale, and the Chinese officials really credited with enabling them to get the situation in Wuhan under control to the extent that then when Chinese officials visited Italy, for example, which was sort of the next place where the pandemic really spiked, they suggested it. And what was interesting for us to see was in Italy, and I, obviously also in the U.S., Officials felt that there was no way people would submit to that kind of mass quarantine. Um, and so it's a, it was interesting on that level, seeing it as a cultural difference. But with the Fangchang, they encouraged social activity, didn't they? I guess it made the experience more tolerable. I mean, is yeah. the general consensus around the world, not just in China, that the Fangchang were the right thing to do? I think it might be too early to have a general consensus on on the you know the best response to covid-19 at this point but i do think that at the very least if you look at chinese numbers and the chinese response it does appear to have been successful based on those sort of self-reported numbers it's hard to assess from the outside it was interesting to read and i did think it was fascinating that there was this attempt to make them less isolating, less with the feeling of, look, you're in medical prison, essentially, by putting on socially distanced activities and making sure there was food and entertainment and activities, uh, as you say. So it was less of an isolating experience. And I think that's one of the things that we thought was interesting about it, as we thought about 
why is quarantine such an underdesigned experience in some ways? And it seemed that people in China had actually thought through what you might need to get through this period of enforced separation from the world. I think one of the most interesting things there is that in some ways, the experience of the function comes back a little bit to actually the origins of quarantine in Venice, when it was more of a communal experience, especially here in the United States, and perhaps even more, especially here in Los Angeles, quarantine was very, very individualized. It was about whether or not you were just in your apartment, maybe stuck with a, a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend who you previously hadn't spent that much time with, but now you were unable to leave and, and you were in very, very confined uh, quarters, maybe even without access to a park or without access to social activity, certainly. But you know, quarantine throughout history actually has changed from at one point, it was very communal. You know, you would have whole families, maybe even whole neighborhoods going into quarantine together. And so there would still be social activities. There would be religious services. There would be whole sort of micro economies developing about how to get food or how to even be entertained. And you see that kind of communal experience of quarantine that it would be very interesting if coming out of COVID-19, um, we actually maybe reevaluate, especially here in the United States, what people need from quarantine, what they need emotionally, what they need socially, what their families might need. I think that'll be a very interesting aspect of this and whether or not something like the Fang Chong program is potentially one way forward for that. I think where we ended up was saying sort of if you're being asked to restrict your movement in the name of public health, well, then you need to believe in the, in the concept of a public. And a Fang Cheng in some ways makes that very real. You are with the public. The authors write that in 1377, Dubrovnik on the Adriatic Sea instituted what's believed to be the world's first mandatory public health measures with quarantine provisions. But it was in Venice that quarantine was refined into an architectural science. I asked them to describe the early quarantine facilities. It's quite interesting, actually. Um, there's, there's a really uh, a pretty clear overlap between defensive architecture and very thick walls, very high walls, impregnable masonry structures located on easily uh, isolated plots of land, whether it's an island or a peninsula, and quarantine stations. And so they looked like fortresses because they kind of are fortresses. And they also looked like prisons because they, well, they kind of were prisons. And so in our tour around the Adriatic and then the general Mediterranean area um, was really a series of visiting very, very picturesque uh, stone ruins that are on magnificent plots of land, you know, overlooking the water, overlooking the harbor, maybe isolated just enough that now they're more like nature preserves. One is an island off the coast of Dubrovnik, Croatia, and the facility there, which was never completed, um, you know, is actually now surrounded by parklands, and there's even um, wild peacocks that kind of wander around. So it's a very idyllic um, and almost uh, romantic kind of place to go. But in Venice in particular, you know, what was interesting is that as they perfected the science of isolation, you know, they went from being able to just seal off maybe an entire neighborhood or just a different district of Venice to actually dedicating this island that became known as the Lazaretto Vecchio or the old Lazaretto and building a large brick building out on the island that took up so much of the island that as you now take a boat to it, it really doesn't look like an island at all. It looks like a, a building that has basically submerged into the waters of the lagoon. You can trace the kind of efficacy of quarantine through the location of these kinds of structures, because when the Lazaretto Vecchio was no longer enough, they needed the Lazaretto Nuovo, which was built a little bit further away from the city. And it's also where they could confine um, not just quarantine, but actually isolate known uh, cases and keep them there. And so eventually then they needed another island. And so there's even another uh, quarantine structure. But it's very interesting because you can kind of 
trace the use value of quarantine and its effect on a disease outbreak by how a city or how a republic might actually design and place the the structures where quarantine took place. One thing that does emerge as you especially go around the Mediterranean is there does appear to have been a template. There was a lot of focus on air, ventilation actually, which again has this sort of interesting resonance in the time of COVID-19. But there was, a, there was a lot of belief that things needed to air out and be ventilated. So you get these enormous lawns where all the goods that the merchant ships would be carrying would be spread out. But you also get these arcades, these huge buildings with rows and rows of, of arches open to the elements. It was just a, a, a strong belief in the free flow of air being sort of necessary to counteract all the contagion that uh, might have come with the people and their goods. I've been talking up courtyards and hoping that Hong Kong developers will hear my message. Were there courtyards in these lazarettos? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Part of that was because in many cases, when, when, for example, there was not an outbreak of the plague in Venice and they were simply quarantining merchant ships, what you do is have the ship's crew and its passengers in uh, accommodations around a courtyard and the goods in the courtyard. And so it was an attempt to sort of keep a group together in quarantine. So then if another ship arrives, you don't co-mingle, as it were. And I think also just what's so ironic about quarantine architecture is that the very things that make a building good for quarantine, like the presence of courtyards or the use of wraparound verandas and balconies that people can go out on to get fresh air, those very things now make them very desirable buildings and very good places to go just to spend time either as a guest in a hotel or with cafes and art centers and performance halls now kind of moving into some of these facilities. And so I think that would actually be a very good argument for um, Hong Kong developers is that the amenity of being able to serve as a quarantine uh, site is the same thing that allows it to be, you know, a, a place where people actually want to spend time. They can sit outside with a cup of coffee or they can, um, you know, enjoy the sunlight. Why did formal quarantine facilities emerge in Europe before other places? Yeah, it's a really interesting question and, and something that we were curious about. And it's impossible to answer certainly or concretely, but there are a few different factors one has to do with medical belief and what you believe causes disease. When quarantine first emerged and was formalized, the disease that it was supposed to stop spreading was the Black Death, the plague. There wasn't the medical understanding that we have today necessarily. So in Venice, which was a more mercantile place, there wasn't particularly an understanding of infection, but there was an observation that disease seemed to come accompany ships that were coming from eastern ports, and that connection was enough to uh, give people pause. You're listening to Nicola Twilley and Jeff Maynow, authors of Until Proven Safe. We just heard how quarantine was developed even before we understood the nature of the diseases it sought to control, and quarantine was taking place at sites of encounter. So I asked the pair whether our airports and other transport hubs will need to be redesigned. We do have quarantine facilities in many major United States airports, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if we begin to see more. I think we will certainly see more quarantine emerging at harbors for sea transport. You know, a lot of the outbreak for COVID-19 actually occurred on cruise ships. But I think one of the things that's also so interesting is that quarantine 
is going to move beyond those sites of contact or encounter and actually pop up maybe in everyday the everyday fabric of life. So maybe a new hotel or motel is being constructed, but it will have quarantine capacity designed into it. Maybe it'll be a dormitory at a university or it'll be a convention center in a city. The, the capacity to quarantine will be designed into that structure so that we don't have to spend, at least in the United States, you know, millions and millions of dollars in order to retrofit places so I think it'll be very interesting, actually, if quarantine becomes an almost ubiquitous aspect of the built environment, even outside of our airports and outside of our port facilities. You make the point in the book that when faced with imminent quarantine, targeted people will just flee and possibly take disease with them. So should governments issue instant quarantines, like not give people a few days to prepare? I just say it's happening now. One of the things that's so interesting about quarantine is that even if it is leaky and it is always leaky, it does still work to slow the spread of disease and importantly, this term that we all heard a lot, flatten the curve, i.e. reduce the sort of exponential spread of the disease to the extent so that your your medical system isn't overwhelmed. So I think trying to become more draconian and more... Um, sort of airtight with your quarantines is perhaps foolish. Another thing that I think was quite interesting during this pandemic is sort of this attempt to be more precise about who needed to lock down and how many households and which areas were amber or purple or whatever the scale in your neighborhood was. And the more detailed that got, the the less useful it seemed. People were confused by the different messages and how was it that just you know, a few miles away over the county line, they were in an entirely different zone and it was safe for them to walk around or gathering groups of six rather than four or whatever. And so I think this micro-targeting is actually less useful than it seems. It's a blunt tool quarantine and you can't really get away from that, but it still works. The constant surveillance that we've seen in some places and the monitoring. I mean, it brings to mind Jeremy Bentham's panopticon. And this sort of thing would have been unacceptable not so long ago. I, I'm just wondering whether quarantine is more of a good idea in democracies or in authoritarian states. One of the interesting comments that was made to us by one of the epidemiologists who works on modeling disease spread and the impact that quarantine effects uh, measures will have on disease spread, Adam Kucharski, um, he's a British scientist who was advising the British government, but he said to us, think in terms of permission uh, with these sorts of privacy issues, build it ahead of time, talk to people about why information is needed what information is needed and what will be done with it, that's going to be a lot easier than in the middle of a pandemic deciding that we need to track everyone's movement and make them wear some kind of, you know, medical device that's reporting their temperature, et cetera, et cetera, and even have that be done by a private company. So, you know, who knows what the uh, the rules around the use of the data are. This is why these kinds of things need to be planned for, because otherwise they will be done badly. I think in the context of a democracy, I think one of the most important things is that you have to maintain and really cultivate trust. People have to actually believe the government that the quarantine order is not, in fact, just a takeover of their private life or an imposition of a kind of draconian, authoritarian uh, you know, state act. 
But in reality, this is being done for public health, for, for public safety and for your safety. Without that trust, you really can't have quarantine. Um, but I think to go back to your question, I think it's also interesting that, you know, surveillance is a very powerful word. And I think that it inspires fear kind of the way quarantine does. You know, it sounds ominous. But I think that what's important is really to differentiate between there is surveillance in the true dystopian sense. You know, you're being watched, you're being tracked, people know where you are, you're being monitored. But then the surveillance and the testing and tracing sense where even if you install, say, a seismograph to watch, to listen for earthquakes, you know, technically speaking, that's a form of surveillance, but it's also a kind of scientific tracking or a way of keeping tabs on the world. And I think that if we are going to have public health, you know, we also need to know whether or not there is a disease circulating through society or we need to know maybe where it came from or if people in a certain city are having a spike in fevers or um, respiratory symptoms are coming in at a certain airport in a certain part of the globe. That is all technically speaking, quote, surveillance. But it's also just simply part of the machinations of, of making sure that we have a sense of global public health. And we know whether or not there's a, a disease and we know how to track it and we know how to isolate and quarantine for it. Until Proven Safe also looks at plant and animal quarantine, which is vital in protecting our global food supply. In the past couple of years, a quarter of the world's pigs have died because of African swine fever, for which there is currently no vaccine. In China, the disease killed 40% of pigs and double the price of pork. So now there are these huge biosecure piggeries that also accommodate staff who do two days of quarantine every time they go there. I put it to the authors that that's a lot of effort and ask whether we'll get to the point it becomes too difficult and too expensive to keep livestock safe from contagion. I don't think farmers would be building, you know, 12-story biosecure piggeries, or the Czech government would be sort of mobilizing its military to hunt and kill feral pigs every night to try and eliminate African swine fever if it wasn't an economic decision. That's one of the interesting things about looking at quarantine in agriculture is that the decisions are, you know, that economic rationale, which is built into quarantine anyway. You know, you could see a lot of people saying, well, we'll lose money if we shut down. We'll lose money if we, if we don't let tourists in. The impacts on trade and travel always have an economic cost, and that's set against the benefits that you're going to see from the disease not spreading. In agriculture, that calculus is black and white because we don't have sort of the intangible of the value of human life to think about. And so it was interesting to look at these sorts of decisions in terms of animal agriculture and see what it is that we think is worth quarantining in the natural world. You know, we saw that again and again, where the question was, is the thing itself worth protecting? We also went to a chocolate quarantine facility, a cacao plant facility in um, suburban London where, again, it was that same question, you know, is the global chocolate market worth enough to go through these protocols, to jump through all these hoops and to build these facilities and send cacao plants to suburban London and raise them under these very, very controlled circumstances? And for now, the, the answer is yes, it is worth it. It'll be quite interesting, actually, you know, when a certain commodity or good falls out of that sort of sweet spot, so to speak, and is no longer worth protecting or is simply easy enough to replace so that we don't even have to worry about if a disease you know, strikes the, the swine herds of, of parts of China or for that matter, Europe or North America, because we can simply replace it. On the subject of effort, can you tell our listeners about Barrow Island in Australia? 
and what the energy corporation Chevron has done there and why. Barrow Island is an extraordinary example of quarantine. Anyone who knows Australia's flora and fauna will already know that it is very unique and easily upset by the importation of insects and animals from around the world. Barrow Island is even more unique and also pristine, one of the few places in the world where there isn't, you know, rats and cockroaches and so on. The problem is it also sits above an enormous amount of oil and natural gas. And so Chevron wanted access to that. And the Australian government said, fine, but you have to protect Barrow Island nothing can be allowed to disturb its ecosystem. Of course, you could argue that pumping all that oil and natural gas will ultimately contribute to climate change, which will disturb Barrow Island's ecosystem. But that's a long, long-term way of thinking. So what they've done was actually design an incredible quarantine system that was highly automated in some places where it made sense. So there are little robots that roam around the island sending GPS reports of potential weeds or acoustic monitors listening for the call of a particular gecko. They redesigned shipping containers because that's a huge pathway for pests and invasives to get onto an island. They came up with all sorts of novel ways of training their quarantine inspectors, including a computer game that uh, is now being adapted by the Chinese border control. They also invested a huge amount in studying which of these things really worked. Of course, you know, they could afford to do that because the oil and gas was worth so much. So everything they spent on this gold-plated version of quarantine, they've made back in spades, uh, as they said to us. Do tell us about Quarantine Hero, that game that you mentioned. I haven't seen it, but it sounds fascinating. The title alone, I think, makes it a, a kind of classic of, of the genre, you know, quarantine hero being something that, you know, be, can become competitive and the idea that you can actually beat someone else at, at being better at quarantine. Um, but yeah, it's a funny little animated game where you actually see uh, characters kind of coming through an inspection line. And I think at least quite visibly obvious uh, pieces of maybe seeds or bugs or other things that need to not be imported onto Barrow Island, um, you know, pop up on their clothing or maybe inside a bag. Maybe there's a forbidden item of food that they, they're bringing in a, in, a, in a paper bag out onto the island. It's a, it's a nice way to sort of keep people on their toes. And I think that was something that we saw again and again throughout our research as well. It's just that you have to really think like a, a pest. You know, you have to think like an invasive species or think like a germ. Because you have to look at the places where those things will be uh, hidden, you know, the hem of somebody's trousers or in the pocket of someone coming through, or for that matter, in the trunk of a car. Now, before you talked about how quarantine is inevitably leaky, but continue it must, but do you see a future where the world is one big lazaretto or quarantine station? Mm. Well, yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I think that it's actually quite easy to imagine that these kinds of systems that we're putting in place now for quarantine and for monitoring and for tracking and testing, all the things that we've talked about so far, you really could imagine these things becoming permanent. You know, one of the things that we look at in the book is how temporary or seemingly temporary innovations like health papers that allow you to avoid quarantine because you can prove that you don't have a certain disease. You know, these things date back five, 600 years and yet now have solidified into what we now just simply refer to as the passport or passport control. So we do see ways in which temporary changes in the face of a pandemic or of a very deadly disease actually do you know, become part of the fabric of everyday life. 
And I think that we really do run the risk, I guess you could say, or for that matter, if you're very into um, these kinds of systems, you know, there's an opportunity. Um, I, I'd say there's there's more of a risk that, you know, these kinds of things do have the possibility of turning the world into a giant Lazaretto. You know, we look at the idea of algorithmic or anticipatory quarantine, where we are surrounded by structures that can quarantine us without even necessarily being told to by a human uh, operator. So the idea that maybe if you combine your internet searches with the uh, information coming from all of the kind of diagnostic or sensor-based appliances around your house. Maybe you've been searching for flu remedies online, and maybe uh, your bathroom mirror, which might have a sensor behind the glass, uh, is picking up signs of a fever. Put those things together, and you might find that your apartment suddenly doesn't let you out someday. How close are we to that? I wouldn't be surprised if that kind of capability becomes market-ready you know, within even just the next few years. We're, we're already seeing the ground being laid for that. You know, one thing we mentioned in the book is that Amazon has patented ways that its own sensors, including its its home um, listening microphone system uh, known as Alexa, you know, can already pick up the sound of someone coughing in a house and then deduce from that whether or not they're sick. Uh, I can even tell from your tone of voice if you might be sad, uh, depressed, um, or for that matter, suffering from an illness. And of course, as the patent language itself describes, uh, you know, their own uh, technological systems have the capacity to alter settings of, of smart homes. The, the technical capacity to do that, I think, actually already exists. Um, the interesting question, I think, will be, what is the case that triggers it? And, you know, what is it that will happen? And, you know, will it be 2023? Will it be COVID-24? You know, what, what is the disease or what are the circumstances that actually allow someone to say, hey, we're going to try this new setting? And your front door is not going to unlock tomorrow, um, you know, because, you know, you're suffering from a certain disease or maybe you're suicidal and they're afraid that you're trying to run away. Do you think researching the book and speaking to lots of experts and then writing the book, do you think it's changed your behavior? I definitely admit uh, in the agricultural quarantine chapter, I was a, I don't even know if I should say this, but I was a serial offender bringing agricultural products through checkpoints and not declaring them. And I don't do that anymore. Um, I've realized the idiocy of doing that and the potential risk and don't want to be the person who starts the next agricultural apocalypse. So, <laughs> This has definitely made me aware of the fragility of many systems that I took for granted and the idea that yeah, sneaking a piece of fruit through agricultural quarantine. Um, you know, it seemed like a very low stakes thing. Now I realize just exactly how serious some of those th- some of those kind of quarantine violations can be. You know, if quarantine is about separating things until they can be proven safe enough to interact. Um, you know, the flip side of that is just that everything is connected and that everything is very, very close to being fused together. And quarantine can sometimes be the only way we keep them apart. There's a tendency during COVID-19 to get annoyed by seemingly stupid regulations or say, oh, well, how do they even know that, you know, this person's an essential worker and they need to go out, whereas I don't? Um, Maybe I'll go out anyway, or, you know, sort of things of that sort. And I think knowing that quarantine is always leaky and does still work has helped me sort of live with what seems like these flawed rules. They are flawed. Of course they're flawed. They have to be flawed, but I should still be following them as a public citizen wishing to contribute to public health. You've been listening to the Postbooks podcast. I'm Charmaine Chan, and I've been speaking to Nicola Twilley and Jeff Maynard, the authors of Until Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine. Look for the accompanying article in the South China Morning Post 
Post Magazine.